Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about what is a country anyway? I've said before that this podcast aims not to be political, to the extent possible anyway, for a history podcast. And there is nothing more politically controversial than the question of whether or not Taiwan qualifies as its own country, or is it instead a part of China. So we're not going to talk about that today. Instead, I want to talk about the very concept of a country throughout Chinese history, or rather, in Chinese, the concept of guo. The word, the character guo, actually can be translated as any one of three closely related but distinct concepts in English. Country, nation, or state. These are distinctions that most English speakers don't think about too much, but intuitively understand. One may say, Spain is a beautiful country. But one would say, the English are a peculiar nation. And one would say, North Korea is a totalitarian state. Country primarily refers to the land. Nation primarily refers to the people. And state primarily refers to the government. In Chinese, however, we are stuck with a single character, guo, that has to serve the functions of all three. What does it really mean? Well, as you may know, Chinese characters originated as drawings, visual representations of things in this world. They grew more abstract over time, and obviously some characters had to be invented, had to be developed to represent abstract concepts that did not lend themselves to easy visual representation. But some characters, even today, remain not all that different from the ancient drawings whence they came. In the case of the character Guo, at least in its traditional non-simplified form, we begin with a rectangular boundary, a box, which represents a country's borders. Then we have a horizontal stroke within that box, representing the land. Above it is the symbol for mouth, which can also mean population, as in mouths to feed. And above that and to the right, we have the character for an ancient weapon, symbolizing the military. So there you have it. What is a guo? It must have borders, land, population, and some kind of military capability. All of which rather reminds me of Max Weber's definition of a government as that which monopolizes the legitimate use of violence within a defined geographical territory. 
So much for etymology. But how has this character been used? How has it been understood by the Chinese themselves throughout history? Well, must I point out the obvious? That contrary to what the Chinese government may want us all to believe, the concept in Chinese culture of a country or a nation or a state, and hence the concept of China itself, must necessarily have evolved throughout time. In earliest Chinese history, the word "guo" referred not to China, but to subdivisions within it, principalities and dukedoms and fiefdoms that the ancient kings granted to local lords. Feudalism, of course, made sense in ancient times, given difficulties of communication across long distances. A central monarchy couldn't effectively rule any locality, certainly not when the landmass in question was continental in size. It made more sense to devolve authority onto the local aristocracy. This was the case, and this was the meaning of Guo during the Xia and Shang dynasties. So we're talking about between four thousand years ago and. Three thousand years ago, the Zhou Dynasty, starting around three thousand years ago, so around one thousand BC, famously implemented a more deliberate system of feudalism. Then the Zhou Dynasty began to fall apart, ushering in the Spring and Autumn period. During this period, as the Zhou monarch became a nominal ruler. The various lords ceased to answer to the authority of the king. Instead, five dukedoms called Guo now vied for supremacy. In time, five became seven, and the dukes began to call themselves kings. So the dukedoms were now kingdoms, and the time period came to be called the Warring States. Note, however, that cultures also weren't homogenous back then. So, a local lord or prince might, in fact, be the tribal leader of the local tribe that, by blood and by culture, might not be all that Chinese as we imagine the notion today. So, a number of guo. Are recorded in Chinese history as coexisting with the five powers of spring and autumn, and the seven kingdoms of the Warring States, as being actually pretty powerful, and as occupying areas now emphatically considered the Chinese heartland, but which were not ranked among them and were, at the time, thought of as arguably foreign nations. Culturally, maybe not really Chinese. The kingdoms of Ba and Shu, in modern-day Sichuan Province, were good examples. They really seem to be not very Chinese at all, particularly if archaeological evidence is any guide. These two kingdoms were destroyed by the kingdom of Qing, one of the seven kingdoms of the Warring States, in 316 BC. As the Qing went on to unify China, 
and established the first imperial dynasty, Ba and Shu irrevocably disappeared into the notion of China, even though they had as much right to exist as independent nations as anyone. Similarly, on China's east coast, in the areas north and south of modern-day Shanghai, two other kingdoms coexisted, called Wu and Yue. They were left out of the count of the major Chinese powers, even though they might have been as powerful as the others at one point, and even though they played significant roles in the wars and politics of their time. Duke Huan of the Qi in the 7th century BC reportedly said at one point, of all the guo under heaven, none is stronger than the yu. And King Goujian of the yu, who sat on the throne of his kingdom from 496 to 464 BC, remains one of the most famous figures in Chinese history. After suffering initial defeat at the hands of the neighboring Wu, after the humiliation of being made into a servant of the king of Wu, King Gojian returned to his kingdom, rallied his people, and avenged himself upon his adversary. In 473 BC, he destroyed the Wu completely. And upon his great victory, King Gojian was proclaimed the hegemon of all of China, even though, again, his country and its culture were considered not quite Chinese. In fact, modern DNA studies suggest that the ancient people of the Yue might have been closer relatives to Austronesian peoples, such as the indigenous tribes of Taiwan. Their language was also distinct from what was spoken and written in the properly Chinese kingdoms, quote-unquote. Indeed, it might be closer to modern Thai than to modern Chinese. And the story of the Yue doesn't end there. In 334 BC, the neighboring kingdom of Chu conquered the Yue. A group of Yue survivors, like Aeneas and the surviving Trojans escaping a burning Troy, took to the sea. They sailed southward along China's coast before making landfall south of the Chu. There, they established another kingdom called Mingyue instead of simply Yue, Ming being the name of this new area that they now populated. It's a funny thing. We always say that Qin Shi Huang, the first emperor, unified China. But actually, after he defeated the other six kingdoms of the warring states, Qin Shi Huang sent an army south to attack Mingyue. But in the end, the army of Qing found it too difficult to assert control over the area, too difficult to subdue these people. So they gave up. The Mingyue kingdom survived into the Han dynasty, into the late 2nd century BC, 
when Emperor Wu Di of the Han, that great conqueror, finally subjugated it. So Mingyue ceased to exist in the area that it occupied, still called Ming, is now also called the province of Fujian. But again, historically, it had as much right to claim an independent existence and identity as any country. Had Emperor Wu Di not conquered it, had his campaign gone differently, Mingyue might still persist as a country, as Thailand and Vietnam persist as countries. Indeed, the Yue and the Mingyue people might be relatives of the Vietnamese. Yue in the southern language is pronounced Viet. And so what if the incorporation of Mingyue into China happened over 2,000 years ago? In parts of Fujian province even now, on the Mazu Islands, just off the coast of Fujian, controlled by Taiwan, local people worship a god unique to their communities. He's called Bai Ma Zunwang, or the White Horse Prince. Who was the White Horse Prince? He was a prince of that ancient, lost Mingyue kingdom, who lived during the Han Dynasty's rule in the rest of China. Some 2,200 years later, in this province whose status as a part of China is not disputed by anyone living today, the local people still preserve a sliver of the ancient memory that, once upon a time, they had their own country, their own royal family, and their own culture. Okay, so the Han Dynasty conquered the Mingyue an independent state called a guo. At the same time, the Han regime partially continued the feudalism of the past. So various fiefdoms were granted to various princes of the realm. And these fiefdoms, again, were called guo. In one recent episode, we talked about the book Huainanzi, compiled by the prince of Huainan and his friends. Well, Huainan was the name of one of these fiefdoms, the prince of Huainan being its ruler. At the same time, the Han Dynasty Chinese and the Chinese going forward also referred to truly foreign countries as Guo. I'm talking about Persia, the Roman Empire, Great Ionia in today's Kyrgyzstan, Sogdiana in today's Afghanistan, and so on. The same concept, Guo, appeared to cover both a semi-autonomous fiefdom within China and an utterly foreign polity like Rome. So, is Taiwan its own Guo, or is it a part of the guo that we understand to be the contemporary concept of China. Well, I'm still not going to answer that. But whatever your answer, I think it's worth remembering both the different meanings of that word throughout Chinese history, as well as the many polities that once occupied 
portions of what is now China that operated for even centuries as independent countries, independent states, and independent nations. This has been MODG. Thank you for listening.